Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Supernatural George. I'm Mittens, and today we're going to be talking about Season 6, Episode 17, My Heart Will Go On, written by Eric Charmello and Nicole Snyder, and directed by Phil Sagricia. So, just how butthurt was Sam to learn how much Balthazar hated Celine Dion? I mean, when he can't lie in 1420, he repeatedly admits that she's his favorite singer. Poor guy. Put through all of this trauma unnecessarily by Balthazar, supposedly because he hates that song, which is probably on Sam's favorite playlist. Oh well. We get a fun little mess of an alternate timeline in which the Titanic never sank to create 50,000 souls for Cass because, for some reason, he needed 50 large pretty quick, which feels like a supremely relevant number when you recall that three episodes later, we will learn that Cass was loaned the power of 50,000 souls by Crowley to slap down Raphael right after he abandons Dean raking leaves, theoretically right after the end of the apocalypse that wasn't. So all this time, Cass and Crowley have had this debt. And the fact that he's gone to these lengths to generate 50,000 new souls by completely altering the world as we know it does really sort of feel like a failed attempt to buy his way out of his deal with Crowley. Pay back those 50,000 souls, wipe the slate clean, don't have to worry about it anymore, right? He can back out of that deal. He's still trying to find an alternate way to go. Like, if I didn't have to borrow those 50,000 souls from Crowley... Maybe in this universe, he creates those 50,000 souls so he can slap down Raphael without asking Crowley for help. So even though everything gets put back right, this episode ends up changing nothing. It gives us a sad little peek behind the curtain, especially with a later context from the man who would be king of what poor Cass was struggling with at this point in the season. It might be a silly little diversion for us in the moment, but who boy, it fills me with heartbreak. There is so much lovely fun to be had with just the gag reel stuff from this episode. The silly little dancing as they filmed the White Russia scene, which I will have more to say about when we get there. I think they're all in my tag for this episode, so I'll just point everyone there. Plus the implications that Cass was still literally doing all of this to protect Dean is even more heartbreak to throw on the pile. And yes, season six continues to be bafflingly all about the souls, even if our gallant heroes still can't figure out how or what that even means. Maybe someone should have actually told them the truth about the bigger picture, yes? Yes. Like, if Cass had gone to Sam and Dean for help about getting out of his deal with Crowley and been upfront with them about what Raphael's actual goals were, restarting the apocalypse, forcing Sam and Dean to play their roles, all that nonsense that Cass was trying to avoid, I think this would have been the point where he should have been upfront with them. But I think at this point, it's a combination of shame, guilt, and desperation. And he just can't. So yes, while he ends up being the villain of the season, he was only trying to do his best. 
Anyway, let's get on with it then. And I will note right at the outset here that my Blu-ray player seems to be reaching the end of its natural lifespan, and I had to restart it by unplugging it and plugging it back in again because the buttons just stopped working on it randomly. And it is ancient, and I don't know, it might be older than some of the people listening to this podcast. So (laughs) if it gives up the ghost, this podcast is going to get real weird real fast. Anyway, hopefully it manages to last out this episode at least, maybe a few more. We'll see. On with the show, to the then segment. We open with a shot of Baby screeching up on camera very dramatically. To remind us, yes, this is Sam and Dean's car. And then a shot of our introduction to Ellen, who recognized Sam and Dean as John Winchester's boys. We're reminded a bit of the relationship that developed between everybody, Ellen and Joe, over the years that they were on the show. And then Ellen and Joe's tragic sacrifice in season five in order to give Sam and Dean a shot at killing the devil. They played an important role in the story and their losses felt deeply by everybody. We then cut to Cass earlier this season explaining to Balthazar that it's civil war up in heaven, and Balthazar has his heaven weapons. Cass wants to beat Raphael and end the civil war, and Balthazar tells Cass that he tore up the script for everyone, that they don't have to play their roles anymore. We are then reminded by Balthazar of the power that souls have, what they are worth. Then we're reminded of Bobby's relationship with Rufus over the years. Antagonistic as it may have been, they were still probably the closest friends that either of them had. You know, kind of friends who'd help you bury a body, quite literally. Followed by a recap of the events of the end of last week's episode where... Bobby was possessed by Eve's monster, and then killed Rufus, and mourned him as we closed out last week's episode. And then we come to now. We join a man in his garage in Chester, Pennsylvania. He props up his garage door with a board, and carries a beer that is a brand we've never seen before on Supernatural. It's called something like Wild and it has a picture of a giant iceberg on it. I love Jerry Wanick, and he did a really, really good job with Titanic elements in this episode, because they're everywhere. I even like the name Chester, Pennsylvania. Not Winchester, not even lose Chester, just plain old Chester. More of the same, even if almost nothing is the same. He's working on something and then reaches for his beer, and it's not where he left it. It's across the room. Reaching for it, he knocks down a whole jar of nails. It's like nothing can go right for this poor guy, and it just becomes a cascade of ill fortune. He grabs a broom to sweep up the mess of the broken jar and the nails, and inadvertently knocks loose a skateboard that rolls across the room. He backs up and steps on the skateboard and loses his balance and almost impales himself through the face on a giant pair of shears. Shout out to Atropos, the Cutter of Fates, who almost got him there. But he catches himself, because apparently this wasn't comically bad enough yet. 
He knocks over a bucket of golf balls as he's straightening things back out on, on the shelf that he bumped into. And they go scattering across the floor and he slides on them comically, sending one shooting across the room as he falls on his back underneath the garage door. One of the balls bounces perfectly to land on a mouse trap across the room, which flings it back with enough force to knock the pole out, supporting the garage door and beheading him. And then we cut to the title card. How was any of that supernatural, we ask ourselves? That just looked like a scene straight out of The Simpsons. Because that's kind of what it was. Scene literally straight out of The Simpsons. After the title card, we cut back to Bobby's house where he looks like he's just drowning in research. He finishes a bottle of whiskey and then immediately opens another. He's looking through that book that the dragons had, trying to figure out all this mother-of-all stuff. And it fits sort of seamlessly to the end of the last episode, where they basically learned everything they know now about who this mother of all is. And Sam and Dean look on, concerned for Bobby. They have a silent little conversation where they're mouthing, you talk to him, no you, no you. And this conversation immediately seems odd to us because they're actually mouthing those words. They're not just exchanging silent looks and facial expressions like they normally do. This is a different incarnation of Sam and Dean with different life experiences and different shorthands. And even details on that level make it into this episode. And I love that. And finally, Dean holds out a fist to play rock, paper, scissors. And we know Dean always plays scissors, right? And he always loses because Sam knows he always plays scissors. In this instance, yes, he does play scissors, but he wins. Sam plays paper. So, like, is this the thing in this alternate reality where they were raised differently? And it's fun to play spot the difference in this episode. Because right now, we don't understand that this is a completely different universe than the one we saw in the last episode. Sam opens his mouth to say something and Bobby cuts them off. Like, are you two just going to stand there or are you going to actually pitch in and help here? And then Dean is the one who, despite having one Rochambeau, is bringing up their concerns. Bobby, you haven't slept in days. Bobby's like, what are you, my wife now? And you think he's just being typical sarcastic Bobby. But no, he means that literally his actual wife, who is alive and not Karen. Dean tells Bobby that it would be good to just take five, just take a take a break for just a little bit. And Sam expresses that it was tough on all of them seeing Rufus go like that. So Rufus died in this universe too, maybe not in the same exact way, because Bobby's guilt doesn't seem to be that direct. But they express it as he wasn't just a poker buddy. He was someone who had a long-standing friendship with Bobby. Bobby grumps right back at them that he knew Rufus was done for the minute they met. It was the only question was who first, him or me. Sam and Dean just walk away to have their own private conversation about Bobby's state of mind here. Yeah, this definitely isn't about Rufus. Uh, maybe if we distract him with a case, Sam pulls out a potential case. A newspaper article about three random deaths in a week. Members of the same family who all died in unusual and disturbing ways, like Garage Door Guy. 
Bobby then comes in. They're about to show him the case. Bobby just kicks them out of his house. They go into a Ford Mustang with the original baby license plates, K-A-Z-2-Y-5. And it's definitely not baby. But in this universe, it is their baby. A Mustang. And I have to take this moment to say... Originally, when Kripke was developing this series, he wanted the boys to drive a 65 Mustang and was talked around to the Impala, specifically the 67 Impala, because he should pick a car that A, was big enough in the trunk to hide a body in, and B, was menacing enough that when you pulled up next to it at a stoplight, you rolled your windows up. A scary car and the Impala fits the bill. But in this universe, where there's no such thing as an Impala, they get their 65 Mustang. Also, the scrapyard is not Singer's salvage yard. It's B and E for Bobby and Ellen. As they're incongruously getting into this car that we don't recognize, as if it's completely normal to them, Sam tells Dean, She just called from the road. She'll be here soon. And Dean's like, what, you want to just stay here until she gets here? Who's this mysterious she? Back inside Bobby's, he's about to pour himself another drink when Ellen walks in. As if this was also completely normal and she hasn't been dead for most of a year. She's got a paper bag full of groceries. And she's complaining to Bobby that she leaves for a week and the whole place goes to hell. Ellen mothers Bobby into going to get cleaned up, so even though Sam and Dean failed to get him to take care of himself, she succeeded. He calls her a pain in the ass, and she kisses him on the cheek and tells him, that's why you married me. So in this universe, where things happened clearly very differently, Ellen and Joe lived, and Ellen married Bobby. All it took was unsinking the Titanic. We cut back to the garage in Chester, Pennsylvania, where Sam and Dean are investigating after dark, looking for what could have possibly killed this guy. Family curse. It's not a vengeful spirit. No EMF. But they find a strange gold thread on the floor. And it's actually solid gold. Why would it just be lying on the floor of a handyman's garage? Dean gives his very quotable and famous line, accidents don't just happen accidentally. And Sam looks at him like he's a moron because that's, yeah, kind of dumb. But this many accidents don't just happen accidentally. Sam goes off to research the family tree and Dean goes off to interview the next of kin. Which goes extremely poorly as Dean tries to interview another local family member who happens to be a lawyer who's in a big rush and has no time to listen to Dean talk about his genealogy research project where he's looking into the Russo family history. But he's also cousins with all three of the deceased people. Dean asks the man to describe his family as like big, average, from Italy. You know, we're just regular people who went about our lives and I'm not close with most of my family. And Dean asks some of the worst questions that Dean has ever asked in an interview situation. Has anybody ever died tragically or was there a war or violence situation? And they're not even like standard hunter questions. They're just terrible. Dean asks a series of increasingly disturbing questions like if you've ever threatened a gypsy or 
a member of the Nazi party or all kinds of just incredibly insulting and disturbing questions. And the guy finally has had enough and is ready to kick Dean out. When Dean stands up, he tells him, okay, just one thing, your life is in danger. He's trying to warn the guy, but he goes about it in the absolute worst possible way. The guy's like, are you threatening me? And Dean comes back with, no, 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 I'm not threatening you. I'm just saying, if you don't watch your back, you're going to die. And usually he goes about this in a much more gentle fashion. Like, you know, just take care, look out for yourself. Maybe be a little extra cautious. There's been some concern that there may be a more targeted attack on people in your family. And yet he doesn't come up with any of that. He just comes off sounding like the worst possible incarnation of threatening Dean, very weirdly, is wearing jeans with his suit jacket, I guess because he's not posing as a cop or something, but he calls Sam as he comes out, and Sam's coming out of the local records office. They can't find anything unusual in this family's background. They emigrated from Italy in 1912, and that's our big neon flashing sign. We didn't pick up on the iceberg or any of the other Titanic references that there have been so far. That should be it. 1912. But they've lived a totally normal white picket fence life ever since. So Sam and Dean can't figure out why these people are dying. We then cut to the E.J. Smith Travel Agency, where a woman is on the phone making travel arrangements for somebody, trying to convince them that Cuba is the destination of choice for people. America's number one holiday destination, big poster in the background. And when this episode came out, there was no tourism allowed to Cuba. I know since then the tourism restrictions have been relaxed a little bit because my sister's been there. (laughs) So like, I know you can travel there. It's not maybe the easiest place to get to, but it's not completely closed like it used to be. So when this originally came out, it's like, wait, why is she trying to sell vacations to Cuba? There's another poster in the background. Visit Detroit, America's top vacation destination. Detroit. Okay. That's not how it is in our world. And E.J. Smith was the ranking officer on duty on the Titanic when it hit the iceberg. So interesting that he's got a whole travel agency now instead of having that ended his life. But as this woman is on the phone, all of a sudden, everything freezes. And as everything is frozen, a woman, looking very matter-of-fact, comes in carrying a big heavy book, reaches into the travel agent's purse, pulls out her keys, and throws them behind the copy machine. The librarian-looking woman looks around, makes sure everything is exactly how she wants it to be, and then time restarts, and the copy maker keeps doing its copies, and the woman on the phone has not noticed a single thing happened. The woman gets off the phone call and then looks in her purse for her keys. Can't find them, checks her pockets, looks all over the place, and finally spots them on the floor behind the copy machine. She reaches down to pick them up, and while standing up, she bumps into a bookshelf and knocks a vase of flowers over, and it spills water all over the copy machine, which starts shorting out. She just starts randomly pressing buttons trying to save this piece of equipment. And as she leans over the machine trying to reach to unplug it, 
the scarf dangling from her neck, gets pulled into the paper feeder and will not let go and strangles her to death. And as she lies there, the librarian-looking lady comes back in and drops a gold thread from the bookmark in her big book as she goes through and crosses this woman's name out of her ledger. So this entire string of OSHA violations was arranged by her. She is clearly our monster here. But something even bigger is going on. Because this is clearly all wrong. And I absolutely love how this episode gives us all of this information in little pieces. It's sort of like season six itself. We've gotten hints all episode long without them coming out and saying, this is different because this isn't the car Sam and Dean have been always known to drive. We're letting you figure out why it's different. Why this is not their regular universe. Putting these clues together all of these people emigrated to this country in 1912, that there's a picture of an iceberg on this guy's beer bottle, what all of these things connect back to and what could have changed to make the universe this different. And I love that as a concept tied to death and fate. And it's also one of those lessons that Dean will repeatedly learn from death and reapers about the natural order of the universe and what changing that natural order can do to the universe. And as fate will tell us by the end of this episode, yes, what they did unkilling all of those people on the Titanic and creating all of these souls that were never supposed to exist throws the world out of balance in a way that the universe just can't cope with. And it's desperately trying to self-correct. But it kind of makes you wonder what this universe was like for the entire time. Did it stretch back to the date where the Titanic was different? Because Sam and Dean don't realize at this point that something changed overnight. To them, this is just normal. And they are allowed to remember what that was like. So do they remember an entirely different life as well? Lived from the time they were children. How much of their lives was totally different? Because it was slightly different, but up to this point, it seems that even Rufus died within the last week or two, even though so much else is different. Ellen and Joe never died. Did the apocalypse turn out differently? Was Sam soulless for a year there? What truly was different? What is their relationship with Cass in that universe? How different was it? And it gives you something really interesting to think about. And I don't think we really probe into that universe enough in fandom. And I'd really like to see us ping that one a little more often. Because it is canon. It's a canon alternate universe that exists up until the point where they force Balthazar to resync the Titanic and it becomes as if it never existed. But Sam and Dean remember it. And it would be kind of fun to explore that in a little bit more depth and detail, even as a closed universe. What could have been there? After hours, Sam and Dean break into the travel agency to scope out that scene. So they're not even trying to get in with the cops or using their usual techniques. They're literally just sneaking around this whole world. To the point where it feels like their standard behavior, even though it really isn't. 
Apparently, the travel agent was not even distantly related to the Russo family, who had been the source of the three previous deaths in town. So they're like, if this isn't a family curse, then why are all these people just dying in these bizarre ways? And Dean finds another golden thread on the floor. Back at their motel later that night, the White Star Motel, which is the name of the cruise ship line that the Titanic was part of, Dean calls Ellen for advice. He mentions the thread, and Ellen's like, yeah, I was worried about that. There's been about 75 of these deaths nationwide, and Joe and her crew, so they've got this big crew of hunters, apparently, have been working on a similar case out in California. Dean bothers to take a whole detour into everybody's emotional state. How's Bobby doing? How are you doing? Ellen's like, we're gonna be fine, but how are you doing? And that is such an oddly weird conversation, but exactly the sort of conversation that Ellen would have pushed them into having. The motherly conversation. And Dean doesn't think twice about it. He doesn't fight it. He doesn't complain about it. He just is open with her. And it's a beautiful, wonderful thing that, God, they should have had more of on this show. But when they go back to talking about the case, the only connection that Ellen can find between all of these people who've died is buried pretty deep in their history. All of them are descended from people who came to America aboard the same ship in 1912. Dean asks her what was so special about this boat. And Ellen's like, nothing. It did what boats do. And they'd never heard of it because there was nothing to hear about it. So they start digging into the history of the Titanic on a website called the Marconi Pages. As Sam scrolls the page, though, he discovers there was a close call with an iceberg and the ship nearly sank on its maiden voyage. But it was saved due to the quick actions of the first mate, IP freely. And they zoom in on a photograph of the crew and immediately recognize Balthazar. So they know something's fishy here. So they do a summoning ritual and bring Balthazar there to ask him a few pointed questions about the Titanic. Balthazar cavalierly explains that he saved the ship, that it was supposed to crash into an iceberg and sink tragically with a lot of fanfare and he stopped that from happening. Sam asks why, and he's like, oh, because I hated that movie. And Dean's like, what movie? And Balthazar's like, exactly! They still can't process this. Like, you saved a cruise ship because you hated a movie? And Balthazar goes on to say yes, and that god-awful Celine Dion song. Sam's like, who's Celine Dion? She is now apparently just some unknown lounge singer in Quebec. And it should stay that way, according to Balthazar. Poor Sam would never have known his favorite singer. Sam is like, well, I thought it was impossible to change history. They've gone back in time several times throughout the series and were unable to alter the events of history. Things still played out exactly as they always had. And Balthazar is like, well, haven't you noticed the rules have changed? There's no more rules anymore. You can do whatever you want now. And Sam is getting upset about this. And Balthazar is like, but I thought you liked it when we saved people. I thought that was your whole deal. 
And Sam's like, yeah, but all of these people now have interacted for generations with other people and changed all kinds of stuff. Who even knows what's different now because all these people survived? What have you done? Balthasar informs them that all the big things are still the same. Sam makes a butterfly effect reference and Dean complains no Kutcher references and then Balthazar's like, yes, there is still an Ashton Kutcher. There was still an apocalypse. There's still archangels. Everything else is still the same. Just a few little details are different. Like, you don't drive an Impala. This is clearly a different version of Dean, who has had a completely different life experience. Dean has no idea what an Impala is. And Then Balthazar, casually, but not so casually at all, throws in, in this version of events, Ellen and Joe are alive. So as indignant as Dean and Sam could be about this generic, unnamed group of people and the changing of all of those fates, when it hits home personally, Ellen and Joe are supposed to be dead, but they lived because I changed this one thing way back in history and maybe you should just let it stand. So Balthazar wants them to just agree that he's done a good thing. But Sam is still like, but somebody's now killing the descendants of the survivors. And Balthazar's like, so? What of it? Balthazar is unconcerned. Sam and Dean are concerned about trying to save the 50,000 people whose lives are now on the line. Like, great that they all were able to exist up till this point, but somebody's now killing them off, and we want to stop that from happening, so what is killing them off? And Balthazar is like, ah, I'm sorry, I think you have me mistaken for the other angel, the one in the dirty trench coat who's in love with you. Balthazar doesn't care. And I need to stop to unpack that line about the other angel, the one in the dirty trench coat who's in love with you that he delivers to Dean specifically, because what was Dean's life like in this world? What was his relationship to Cass in this universe? It doesn't ever truly become clear, other than the fact that even once angels are involved, he doesn't immediately just dial Cass up, he calls Balthazar. But that also leaves them with more questions than answers when Balthazar finishes his drink and just zaps away. Not his problem, apparently. 50,000 people who should never have been born are suddenly dying gives Bobby an idea that they're up against the fates. So maybe fate is trying to clean up the mess that Balthazar made with these 50,000 new souls, which, dead or alive, Cass can trade those in, cash in his deal, you know? But it doesn't end up working because he has to put everything back the way it was and all those souls disappear like setting money on fire, but it sort of contradicts with the lore we know about what happens to souls with Billy's books of destiny that we'll see in much later seasons, where your fate is not measured out by anyone specifically, but is a sum of your own choices. And even when we meet Anubis, who serves in heaven as a sort of functionary, keeping tallies of people's choices. Not that he has any control over changing what those tallies might amount to, 
but he's sort of the keeper of the tally machine. It's still in the hands of every individual to make those choices about themselves, I suppose, unless things get as drastically thrown off as creating 50,000 souls who are never supposed to exist in the first place, and the kind of imbalance that causes in the universe. And also with what the Reapers tell us much later in canon, when they're babysitting Sam and Dean about how they might go about resetting the cosmic order, mid-size war, uh, a plague, things like that that they use to reset the universe back to balance when it becomes imbalanced. So for some reason, all of these people's fates in this reimagined universe can be cut short by and manipulated by an outside force that is not part of or due to their free will. They were just living their damn lives. They didn't know that they were created against the will of nature, you know? So what about everyone that Sam and Dean have saved in the course of their lives in their standard universe? Have all of those people gone on to butterfly affect the world to this degree? I mean, granted, there were more people who were saved if the Titanic hadn't sunk than Sam and Dean have probably saved in their lives, unless you count, like, the apocalypse not happening that saved everybody. (laughs) But they have saved a good number of people, even if they have gotten a certain number of other people killed. Maybe it balances out. Maybe it hasn't thrown anything out of balance. So, things to consider, even if this seems like a one-off outlier in the bigger mythology of life and death, it just feels like different faces of the same concept. But as they're talking with Bobby, they're contemplating how they might be able to stop fate from killing all of these people. Can you even kill fate as a concept? And Bobby comes to the conclusion that the easiest way to solve this entire problem would be to make that angel go back in time and let the boat sink. Let nature take its course. And Dean's immediate response is no way. Bobby's like, it's a lot different never being born and being killed like they're being killed now. If they're never born, no harm, no foul. But Dean is firm. They're not sinking the boat. Bobby asks them, like, what What are you so wound up about? Dean very poorly says nothing. And Bobby knows there's something to probe in here. Dean comes clean with him. He's hesitant, but he tells Bobby a crap load of dominoes get tipped over. And one thing leads to another. And if that boat sank, then Ellen and Joe are dead. Bobby lets that sink in for a minute looks over at a photo of him and Ellen hugging in front of the B&E scrapyard sign, and then gets real serious. Listen up, you two. You are not letting that boat get sunk. After they disconnect, Dean's like, yeah, he's bad enough with her. Just think what he'd be like if she was gone. And we know how bad he is without Ellen. Not that they had a relationship to this degree before she died. They weren't married or anything. They may have been friends, but in this universe, with the changes, it seems like they have a much longer history together. Clearly, they're married, and Bobby has a sort of paternal relationship with Joe, and she seems to be holding him together now in ways that we know Bobby's not 
getting held together back in our regular universe, even with Sam and Dean doing the best they can to try and support him. That leaves Sam and Dean with the only option of trying to figure out how to save all 50,000 of these people. They have no idea how to even start doing that, so they start with the one person they know who might be in danger soon, the lawyer that Dean talked to, Russo. So the next morning, they sit in front of his office, keeping an eye on him, and they see him leave. He's distracted on his phone. They call out his name, try and stop him from crossing the street to warn him. And he almost gets hit by a guy who's falling asleep at the wheel driving. But Sam and Dean manage to pull him out from in front of that van. They save his life. And instead of being grateful, he's angry at them. I told you to leave me alone. He thinks like this is somehow their fault that he almost got run over. Dean tries to tell him that they just saved his ass. And the guy's like, no, you almost got me killed. And he storms off into the street, doesn't even look where he's going, and just tells them, just be grateful I'm not suing your ass. And a bus hits him and just completely flattens him. And there was nothing they could have done to stop it. As they're looking at the bloody splatter left all over the street behind the bus, bus number 666, There's a huge ad for Sean Russo, Justice Matters, Personal Injury and Wrongful Death Attorney, on the back of the bus that killed him. Dean points that out to Sam, and Sam is not finding the humor in this. Dean asks, too soon? And Sam's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure six seconds is too soon. But as they're standing there across the street, there's a business that's all sort of half boarded up. Sam spots the librarian-looking woman from the travel agency watching events go down through a grimy front window. She looks right at him and then moves away. Dean wants to follow after her. Sam points out that they have no idea if they can even affect her at all. Dean flashes Sam his gun and is like, yeah, well, we can try. They head inside this abandoned or under-construction restaurant. And we are shown a close-up of the clock on the wall ticking away until it stops completely, freezes time, and Sam and Dean are frozen. As fate comes in and turns on all the gas in the stove's burners. And then let's time restart. We get to see the little smile on her face as she's very satisfied that she's about to kill Sam and Dean Winchester. And they don't realize how much danger they are in. Dean's flashlight cuts out. Sam suggests Dean get his lighter out. As they walk back toward the kitchen, he can't get it to light until they open the door and let all the gas out of there. And a huge fireball erupts as they are pulled away to a field in the middle of the night somewhere by Cass. Sam asks where they are. Cass replies, White Russia. And they just kind of look around like, okay, like this is not an unusual thing for Cass in this universe to pull them to random places on the planet. But white Russia is not a term that anyone has used since, I believe, before the Russian Revolution. (laughs) So 100 years plus ago, we call it Belarus. So 
I don't know if this universe never had a Russian revolution because that would have been post the Titanic sinking. If world events had been altered ever so slightly, maybe entire series of wars never took place either. What else has gotten changed? Sam and Dean question him about what he knows about what Balthazar has done. Cass passes it off as an act of impetuousness. Dean can't figure out why he and Sam have been targeted by fate if she's going after only the people affected by this boat. And Cass passes it off as, well, she does harbor a certain amount of rage toward you over, you know, that whole apocalypse thing that you averted and deprived her of her job, rendering her obsolete through your act of free will. And then they went and dangled themselves in front of her. And it's not as if Cass is going to come clean and tell them the whole truth about his whole scheme to generate all of these souls in the first place in order to protect these two dudes, and honestly, primarily Dean, as we know. So if Cass is doing all of this to protect Dean, you can be sure that fate wants Dean dead. If for nothing else, to stop Cass from pursuing his ridiculous remedies that are throwing nature out of balance like this. No Dean, no need to have all these souls protected, you know, to power Cass up. No need to fight back against Raphael. Just let the natural order continue. So if protecting Ellen and Joe's lives weren't enough of a motivation for Sam and Dean to do something to stop fate... Protecting themselves is about the biggest personal motivator they could have asked for. They ask Cass what they can even do about it, and Cass just very matter-of-factly says, kill her. And Sam scoffs at that, like, can you even do that? Apparently Balthazar has a weapon that can, yes. They just have to draw her out into the open. Dean complains about that. He's like, yeah, that guy's got everything covered, doesn't he? You need new friends, Cass. And Cass gets right up in Dean's face and is like, I'm trying to save the ones that I have. Meaning Dean. Cass suggests that they make it as easy as possible. You have an expression for it. Tempting fate. So that's what they're going to do. Back at Bobby's, Ellen gets off the phone with Joe, and who is also having no luck at figuring out how to get fate. Ellen agrees that the easiest thing would probably be to get that angel to sink the boat again. Bobby is frozen about this. He knows what the result of that would be. He's just listening to Ellen go on about how it's so horrible to watch all these people dying bloody. It's completely different from never being born in the first place. Bobby's upset at this. He's like, you're talking about people who are loved, who would be missed. And Ellen realizes there's something more going on here. Ellen draws it out of him. We cut to a shot of her taking a sip of whiskey, processing all of this. And she's kind of resigned to that. She's like, well, whatever happens, happens. If it was supposed to be my fate, if I was supposed to die there, I can't really fight against that. But Bobby insists that nothing's meant to be. And that whether or not they're together is at the whim of some dick angel. That is unacceptable to him. He tells her, we need you, especially me. And doesn't that sound like we need you? I need you. Our crypt scene. 
And Ellen doesn't give him any false reassurance. She just tells him she knows. And it's a gesture of love. In this universe, they clearly love one another. That's what those words mean. And then we get one great musical montage as Sam and Dean just casually, not so casually, stroll around town tempting fate. As one way or another by Blondie plays in the background. They almost get run into by several people, including a skateboarder and a bicycle rider. They deliberately climb a flight of stairs where a man is walking two aggressive-looking German shepherds. Dean kind of, like, makes a face. These these two guys, they do not look relaxed. And it's just a reminder to me that Dean really doesn't like dogs all that much. <laughs> He's just cringing away from these dogs. I mean... He also doesn't want them to be the cause of his death again, not hellhounds again, you know? Then they come across some street performers who are juggling big knives and hatchets. When they switch to flaming torches, Sam and Dean decide to tempt fate and walk between where they're throwing these torches back and forth at each other. They pass a construction worker who has a jammed nail gun that points in their direction as he's trying to unjam it by whacking it. And just as they walk in front of a restaurant called Tula's Table, pondering why none of these feats that they've just performed have tempted fate enough, is she really after us? Maybe Cass was wrong. They hear a noise and a scream from up above them, and a giant, what looks like an air conditioning unit or something, falls from a roof above them and lands, or doesn't quite land, just above their heads floating in midair because time has stopped again. I only pointed out the restaurant was called Tula's Table because Tula is famously Jerry Wanuck, the set designer's dog. And I believe this is the first mention of her in canon. And we love Tula. And we get a shot of Sam and Dean looking up at this thing as it falls on them, their reflections visible in the paint on the air conditioner unit as it's hovering just a few feet above their heads. But time has stopped. It's not going to kill them. And Cass walks over and just looks at it. Like, did he stop time? Probably, to save them. But he doesn't pull them out from underneath it just in case, you know. But this does lure out fate. Atropos, who cuts the thread at the end of someone's life. Cass tries to make polite small talk with her. She's mad at Cass. He is behind this whole mess. She's angry because she always had a job. God gave her a job. And then the day of the big prize fight, you all threw out the book. We all had a script we were supposed to be following. And then we failed to follow it. And now I'm out of a job. And it makes me wonder if her script that she followed up to this point, Chuck's big grand plan, was to help arrange everything to bring the apocalypse to fruition. She always had her big book of who needed to die when. I assume her sisters who spun out the lives of all these people and measured the length of their lives 
also had hands in what job was performed by all of these people and making sure they got where they needed to be in order to fill Chuck's script and play out his stage play. But she never turned up and tried to ruin their lives until now, until Cass is just generating souls at random. We've never heard from her before. We've never heard from her again afterwards. It's like she only exists in this pocket universe where Cass changed these particular rules. And I kind of think that might be the case, that she only came into being in this world where there were 50,000 more souls that needed to be purged. Her complaint is that she doesn't know what happens next, and she needs to know. She's not getting orders from heaven anymore, and she doesn't know what to do. That's her job, is to know what happens next. She tells Cass that, I was content to just keep my mouth shut. I've seen what you've been doing. But unsinking the Titanic and changing the past, you have gone too far. Cass again tries to play it off on Balthazar. And Fate is not having that. She's like, don't blame this on the stupid movie. He was under your orders. She knows this. Just like during the French mistake, Cass tried to play it off as Balthazar's choice to send Sam and Dean to that universe without magic, when he'd probably still been under Cass's orders to do that, to protect Sam and Dean. So we are finally starting to see a little bit of how big a hand Cass has played behind the curtain this season. And as Cass usually does when he has to lie a lot, he walks away from her turns his back on her as he tells her he didn't order Balthazar to unsink the Titanic. And she's like, bullcrap. Of course you did. Because you're in the middle of a war and you're getting desperate. You needed the power of those souls. And we had that hint from death way back in Appointment in Samara that it's about the souls. The real mystery that Sam and Dean need to solve is about the souls, and meanwhile, they're freeze-framed over behind this scene as it all plays out, and they have no idea. They're not hearing any of it. If Fate really wanted to help, she would have told them this, instead of just complaining to Cass about it. Because Cass hasn't told them. They have no idea what the true stakes are here. She tells him, "'You created those souls to power your war machine.'" So something about the nature of souls and who has control over them that goes way back to even Balthazar trying to buy souls in the first episode where we met him. Because souls are about the only currency that's worth anything. But she knows what he's done, even when he tries to tell her she's wrong, that she's crazy, that's not what happened at all. He closes his eyes like, damn it, you're right. We get the knowledge that everything she's saying is true, even though he denied it, and even though he's going to continue to deny it to Sam and Dean. And we learn why she's really targeting Sam and Dean. When Cass tells her they don't have a choice, she's like, oh, I'll give you a choice. If you don't go back and sink that boat, I will kill your two favorite pets, and points over at Sam and Dean. That's why she was targeting them. She was trying to draw Cass out to have this confrontation in the first place. 
Cass gets in her face and tells her that he won't let her hurt them. And she's like, really? If you do anything to me, I've got two sisters who are bigger in every sense of the word. And their first targets will be Sam and Dean Winchester, just out of simple vengeance. And Cass might have her on the spot here, but her two sisters, he won't have any way to protect Sam and Dean from them. And as Cass looks over at them, she's like, you're not fighting a war or anything. You can watch them every millisecond of every day forever, right? And he realizes his desperate ploy to get out of his deal, to finish his war here, might be the thing that gets Sam and Dean killed when their protection was his only goal in starting this war in the first place. He cannot win here. Fate is conspiring against him. Literally. As she's talking, Cass comes out with Balthazar stop. Balthazar had been sneaking up behind her. Just as she'd said, fate strikes when you least expect it. Cass ends their entire plan. The weapon that Balthazar has that could have killed her, Cass orders him to stand down. But everyone comes to the conclusion that they've lost this one, Let's sink the Titanic. A moment later, they disappear. Everything goes back to how it was before he unsank the Titanic. The air conditioner system still falls, but Sam and Dean are no longer there underneath it. Because they never went to that town to investigate those deaths because those people never existed in the first place. And everything has been put to rights. Or as right as it ever is in the supernatural universe, when Chuck is still screwing them all over constantly. Sam and Dean both wake up, having fallen asleep in the front seat of the Impala in Bobby's scrapyard, with Celine Dion playing on the radio for some reason. Dean snaps the radio off and is like, oh, that's enough of that. And they both seem kind of groggy and disoriented and... Sam's like, dude, what time is it? Doesn't even wait for an answer and tells Dean that he just had the weirdest dream. Dean replies, 20 bucks says mine was weirder. And they argue about whose was weirder and Dean comes out with, well, mine had the actual Titanic in it. And Sam's like, did it not sink? Uh, because uh, that was my dream too. So they're both freaked out about why they're having the same dream. When Cass appears and informs them that it wasn't a dream, all of it was real, but Cass had to insist that Balthazar go back in time and correct his mistake and let the Titanic sink. And the one honest thing Cass says when is when Sam asks why, is that it was the only way to be sure that you were safe. Sam and Dean struggle with the concept that Cass actually killed 50,000 people for them, which Cass finds kind of distasteful, and he's like, no, I didn't. They were never born. I think that's a big difference, which is the point that they were making throughout the entire episode. Yeah, it's way better to never be born than it is to be murdered horribly. But now they have to confront the reality of what that means. And it might not be as easy or cavalier to say after they had met some of those people. Dean's concern, Ellen and Joe, yeah, they're still dead. Dean has more cosmological questions here. 
if that whole timeline got erased, then how come me and Sam remember it? And this is like an early rendition of Cass demonstrating his current level of understanding about free will. He tells them he wanted them to remember so that they would understand who fate is and what they were all fighting against for free will. Because Cass has learned from them that you should be able to make your own destiny. And he doesn't see how entrapped he is in another fate that Chuck has placed him in yet. But to Sam and Dean right now, choosing freedom over fate does sound like something worth fighting for. And they agree with Cass on that because they don't have the full context of what he's trying to do. How he is directly manipulating their fate, trying to keep them out of this whole deal. And at every turn, making sacrifices himself that they have no idea about yet. And that will be all the more painful when it finally does all come to light. And Cass just wanted them to understand this. Like, if there was anything that had to come out of this terrible mistake he made, he wanted it to at least be something positive to take away from it. To assure them that, yes, he has learned something from them. Dean then questions, so Balthazar really just unraveled it all because of a chick flick? And Cass, once again, can no longer look at him. He looks down at the ground, he shuffles his feet, and tells them, yes, why, yes, of course. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. I didn't order Balthazar to unsink the Titanic to power my war machine. Ha ha, how could you think that? You silly, not our. And when Dean starts turning it into a joke, Cass flaps away without even saying goodbye or anything else because he can no longer look at them. He's like, can't even tell them I'm doing all of this for you. I'm trying my best to save the world for you and keep you out of the worst of it and shield you from all the horrors that I've endured here. And I'm making terrible choices and you're going to judge that, but I can't even face you about it. But I know that I'm protecting you. And that's kind of the whole vibe you get off Cass here. And Dean's just kind of frustrated that he flaps away yet again. But it's going to be so heartbreaking in three episodes when we get the full story right from Cass about everything that he's struggled with. It gives so much context to every time he's flapped away during the season and left them confused and without any real answers. At least when Sam and Dean go back into Bobby's house, he is napping on the couch. He's got a book open in his lap and a glass of whiskey at his head, but at least He's resting. Sam and Dean decide that what Bobby doesn't know won't hurt him. We're keeping our mouths shut. We are never telling him that Ellen and Joe were alive and happy with him in that alternate version of reality. If Bobby doesn't remember it, they're not going to put one more loss on him. And isn't that kind of what Cass is trying to do to Sam and Dean? To shield them from one more loss from one more burden that they'd have to carry, even if it isn't something tangible like human lives that they loved. He's just trying to shield them from the burden of responsibility for all of this. And they don't know it. And Cass is not going to tell them voluntarily. 
just like they're not going to tell Bobby voluntarily about this. Dean goes over, takes the book from Bobby, spreads a blanket over him, and turns off the light, and we see a framed photo where before we saw the B and E's salvage yard, it's back to being Singer Auto Salvage Yard, with just a picture of Bobby alone. Why he has this framed in his living room in a place of prominence, I do not know, but obviously it means something to him. More than that, it means something to us, the viewer. We were given so many visual cues in this episode about what was really going on, and we were shown a little bit of the truth behind what's going on with Cass. We were given some more hints about it being about the souls, even if Sam and Dean are unable to see the truth of that or understand what they should be looking for, because those signs are all actively being hidden from them. Death may have given Dean the instructions to investigate that, but how can they when they're actively being prevented from discovering this information? But we, the audience, are being given more and more blatant cues. We're being shown just how futile and desperate their situation actually is. And that is where the episode ends. And it doesn't seem on the surface that there is any real consequence to any of this other than Sam and Dean getting a bigger picture of understanding where Cass stands on the whole free will versus destiny thing. And I don't think that's new information to them. I think they've known that Cass has been about choosing free will and tearing up the pages of the story and writing their own ending since the apocalypse. This is not groundbreaking discovery for them in the way that it has been presented to them. The way it's been presented to us, though, that Cass is somehow trying to cultivate power and is growing desperate in his war and is losing badly. What is this war about? How is this taking place? Who is involved in this? We know he's fighting against Raphael and Raphael's supporters. We, the audience, haven't even been told what the stakes really are. What does Raphael want? We know that he would take power, but what would he do with that power that Kaz so desperately wants to prevent from happening? We're still just shuffling around with souls. What does the power of them do? What is it used for? Why would generating all these souls help Kaz instead of powering heaven or whatever? We don't know. But Sam and Dean are right back to where they were at the end of the last episode, trying to figure out what to do about the mother of all, the mother of all monsters, Eve, how to stop her, if there's a way to kill her, and nothing in any of their lore books or anyone they know is able to shed any light on that. But they will next week when they will get a hint from the long past and then have to travel there. Because up next is Season 6, Episode 18, Frontierland. And I love this episode because it's ridiculous and silly and gives us a glimpse at Dean's burgeoning cowboy fetish. He gets to be the Slash Sheriff. (laughs) Anyway, and until then, you can always find me on Tumblr at MittensMorgul or at SPNGeorge. Or you can find me on Discord and or Blue Sky at MittensMorgul. Or you can email me at MittensMorgul at gmail.com. 
and I look forward to talking to everybody again real soon. And I didn't even bother to talk about Dean and Cass's relationship much in this episode, but it's clear that Dean is trying to be cavalier. He's not even prodding at Cass to stick around and tell them what's going on. He knows that's not going to happen, and it's like he's almost kind of given up on it and has resigned himself to this because everybody else seems to spend this entire season thinking that Cass is always running to Sam and Dean spending all of his time with them when we know the truth that Cass is working with Crowley and barely spending any time at all with Sam and Dean and most of the time he is spending with them he's too ashamed of what his life has come to to face them directly and is just sort of like invisibly watching them just making sure they're okay and checking in on them and he can't even bring himself to look them in the eyes most of the time so heartbreak ahoy they really uh when they decided to kill Cass off they really decided to rub in the pain because you know how you can eventually redeem a character who was supposedly done something irredeemably evil well you make him lovable (laughs) you make him do everything and sacrifice everything including his own morality to save your heroes And that's what Cass is doing. Doing the wrong thing for the right reasons, but it all just goes horribly wrong. Anyway, we'll be sad about it again next week. So tune in then. Have a good one, everyone.